What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome back, Housing News listeners. This is Austin Lloyd, and I'm the producer of this weekly podcast, which is a proud member of the Industry Syndicate. Today, you will be listening to episode six of season three, which features Mountain Lake Consulting CEO David Stevens, who is the former president and CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association, currently serving on several housing finance advisory boards. In this episode, Stevens, who formerly served as the U.S. Assistant Secretary of Housing for the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development under the Obama administration from 2009 to 2011, discusses his perspectives on the current state of the U.S. housing finance industry, more particularly on independent mortgage banks and their role in housing. As the industry knows, market uncertainty continues to increase as more and more borrowers request forbearance on their mortgages due to financial difficulty born out of the coronavirus pandemic. According to Stevens, every person in the mortgage finance sector needs to be prepared for an extended duration of credit constraints being applied to the loans they're attempting to originate. Before we listen to episode six, Clayton will bring you a word from our sponsor. This episode of Housing News is sponsored by ArchMI's RateStar buy-down tool. Save your borrowers money when you use the industry's only MI buy-down tool to create a custom MI payment the competition can't match. Only from ArchMI. Learn more at archmi.com slash RateStar buy-down. Thank you for listening. And here's episode six of the Housing News Podcast. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. This is Clayton Collins. I'm the CEO at Housing Wire, and I'm joined today with Dave Stevens, the CEO of Mountain Lake Consulting. Dave, thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you, Clayton. Now, I want to I want to set the stage a little bit on uh, on your background for kind of the the importance of this conversation, and the timing of of this conversation. So, Dave spent 15 years at World Savings, was the uh, senior vice president of single family at Freddie Mac, national wholesale manager for Wells Fargo, president and CEO of Long and Foster, U.S. Assistant Secretary of Housing for HUD under 2009 to 2011 under the Obama administration, and the CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association. Dave has seen every aspect uh, inside of this industry in, in leadership roles, which makes him uniquely qualified with unique perspectives to talk about some of the challenges we are facing right now with independent mortgage banks and servicers and how they're being impacted by the coronavirus. So uh, Dave, is that introduction on point? That's, that's pretty close. You got my resume pretty laid out there. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, Dave, the, the main topic that we want to cover with you today are, are your perspectives on independent mortgage banks. And we, uh, we, we've had some interactions in the past and so you've published some op-eds through Housing Wire. And uh, we're hearing that you're kind of of the belief that IMBs are the path to recovery, not the problem. Yeah. Well, look, I think it's a really timely uh, topic given some of the comments that have come out of the FHFA director's mouth related to um, the forbearance plan and how to deal with it. Uh, you know, I, I think people have a, a, a real misunderstanding about what would happen if we didn't have um, the non-bank supporting the housing finance system. So if we could just go back just briefly, back in when I was in the administration, we were struggling with the fact that the largest servicers, vast majority of which were the largest banks, couldn't do the job and deal with the high touch requirements of a borrower in distress. And as a result, um, 
and excuse the barking. It's just working hey, from home. It's, it's <laughs> where everyone's got it. It's, it's the problem that everybody has right now. <laughs> That's my child. Um, but the, uh, uh, as a result, we ended up seeing um, the development of specialty servicers, NationStar, Aquin, you name it. Uh, these, these were companies that were basically given a lot of non-performing servicing from bank servicers because the banks couldn't do the job. That's what really created this onslaught of, uh, of huge servicing growth in the non-bank sector. Um, and then to add to that, the banks had been through this housing crisis paying billions of dollars in fines from uh, the big bank settlement with the, uh, with the uh, federal government to state's attorneys general to false claims act um, settlements and more. And the accumulation of you know, tens of billions of dollars in uh, accumulated value paid out by the banks, the parents of banks really were telling their mortgage subsidiaries, don't ever get us into that kind of trouble again. And that caused them to pull out of certain markets or put overlays or curtail their, their activity in certain markets, particularly the FHA program, which was the most pronounced. Um, I'm putting together a piece that hopefully uh, you guys will run, but it's, um, you know, the data is very clear. The, small number of non-bank lenders who, who had to submit their data to Humda because they reached the threshold, there were about 900 uh, of those, compared to the several thousand banks that do mortgages as well and reported to Humda, the non-banks did well north of 60% of all mortgages, the vast majority of loans to uh, minority home buyers, and the vast majority of loans to first-time home buyers. Uh, and so, Without the non-bank community, we would have, one, uh, not had a specialty servicing industry that can help step in and deal with borrowers in distress. And two, we wouldn't have been helping to create uh, opportunities for, for home buyers coming out of the recession, the last great recession, uh, moving up into the last couple of years. And frankly, the good news in the housing story that we all know has been a big part of the economic growth over the last several years is because non-banks were filling that void. And that's, that's something that makes them unique uh, in, the, in, the in the structure of the housing finance system. And I would just add, Clayton, that um, one of the reasons why that's the case is non-banks only do mortgage lending. They, they don't have auto loans or commercial lending or you know, the various other products that they can um, provide to earn income. They do mortgage lending. And so uh, through good times and bad, they need to be in that market. So from my perspective, uh, having the non-banks in the marketplace is not just nice to have. I think it's critical as a foundation to having a functioning housing finance system that can provide opportunity for responsible for, uh, home buyers as we move forward. So it sounds like you're, you're pointing at the fact that depository or money center banks operate in multiple business lines. So if we're in an economy or a situation where mortgage lending is not profitable or not attractive or too risky, they may choose to pull back on that business line. But IMBs, independent mortgage banks or non-banks don't have that luxury because they have one business line and one business line only, and that is originating mortgages. That's absolutely correct. And look, Banks are important too. They bring capital. Uh, they have balance sheet, jumbo lending uh, that's been done over the past several years. You know, there is no PLS market. And so the vast, very little one anyway. There, so the vast majority of, of non-agency jumbo lending done by banks and non-banks ultimately ended up in the balance sheet of banks. I, 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 I think our country is best served by 
uh, a wide diversity of competitive institutions that provide liquidity to the housing finance sex sector. You know, and Clayton, housing is a, like going to be a critical component of what happens post-corona. The, the, the pace for extending credit availability to get the housing market kick-started is going to be one of the core fundamental components to economic growth as we move forward here. All the demographics tell us we have a shortage of housing and we're, we're, we're not even in peak demand yet uh, from the millennials who are looking to uh, buy homes and the generation following. Uh, and we're going to need all hands on deck to be able to um, make home ownership available to those that can't afford it uh, and be sustainable. And we're going to need banks and non-banks alike. The, the thing I would just emphasize, and my concern is, after this corona is uh, past us and we have a vaccine and we're all fully back to work uh, and functioning, banks are going to remember this period maybe in a similar way that they remembered the Great Recession. If they had higher foreclosures or higher costs due to having to make forbearance and more, they once again will be able to make that decision as to, do I really want to be extending credit, even if the investor will take it uh, in the housing market uh, as widely uh, as I even was doing a few months ago? And I think we need to be ready for the fact that there may be some trepidation from some of the well-capitalized banks that are regulated by the OCC and others and have shareholders and parent companies that do a lot of businesses, uh, based on whatever experience happens, will they come back in and fill the void uh, to where even where they were just pre-crisis, let alone where the non-banks uh, were helping to support the marketplace? Dave, can we, can we back up a little bit and talk about the, the construct of the IMB market and how, how non-banks are funded? Um, how they sell and service loans, uh, can, a little background so we can understand who the constituents are and where the risk lies. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, that's a great question, Clayton, because banks are really not holders of either credit, rate, uh, credit risk or interest rate risk. Uh, they act as, uh, in essence, a pass-through platform in the marketplace from the consumer to the ultimate investor, the investor both in the servicing asset as well as the loan itself. And much of that credit risk, the moment that loan is sold, gets transferred to the investor. So uh, a non-bank originator originates a Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae loan. They underwrite it, they process it, they fund it. Um, they have representations and warranties to say, you know, I did it the way you asked me to, you require me to according to your guidelines. Uh, they package it, they make sure that fully settled package is complete. And then they deliver it uh, into a mortgage-backed security or to an investor like Freddie Fannie directly. Uh, and that loan ultimately gets um, pulled and sold to mortgage-backed securities investors around the globe. But it's Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae's credit in that instance that's being extended through the IMB, actually, I'm, uh, thankfully, because of the IMB was there, to uh, giving the consumer access to that home. So they're, they're literally pulling uh, the the liquidity from the investment community, from the GSEs, uh, directly to the consumer and the point of sale, but they're not owning that credit risk. Credit risk. Uh, independent mortgage bankers have virtually no balance sheet risk. Um, they lend to the standards of either the FHA, VA, or the USDA program, Freddie or Fannie's program, or the jumbo lenders that they may sell their loans to, um, uh, and then the non-QM lenders, as it were. But the only risk they hold is what we call rep and warrant risk for 
doing it the right way. They can't, uh, if they commit fraud, uh, either intentional fraud or if they uh, make material mistakes in packaging that file, then they have to buy it back. And that's where the one uh, piece of risk lies with them. But the vast majority of independent mortgage bankers that I know of in this country are extraordinarily responsible, highly regulated in all the states they operate, they're constantly looked at by uh, the investors that they're approved to do business with. That includes their warehouse lenders, their servicing buyers, the GSEs, if they sell direct to the GSEs, their jumbo buyers, uh, state regulators come in and look at them individually in each state and make sure that they're being compliant. The CFPB now oversees non-banks. Um, you know, this is, this is an institution uh, industry that is vastly different from anything that it looked like uh, pre-2008. And uh, I think it's the, the regulated construct that helps ensure safety and soundness and the fact that they're passing through risk uh, to the investor. Again, both interest rate risk and credit risk to the investor ultimately that keeps the model uh, at a far lower risk standpoint than those that are actually holding risk on the back end. So, and what about the servicer risk? How, how, what risk are servicers facing right now in, in this market? Well, so, you know, we all know that there is a, there is a duration risk on the servicing, especially non-banks that retain servicing. They're, um, they're, they put out a value at the point of sale and what, how long they think that loan is going to stay uh, on the books. And they have models and third-party experts who help them do that. But you know, a traditional GSC loan was somewhere between four and six years expected. So that 25 basis points would get a multiple. Uh, and there is some volatility risk in managing the basis points uh, uh, in that uh, investment. And, um, but nevertheless, it's, it's, it's de minimis compared to the other uh, credit and interest rate risks associated with the marketplace. Um, the vast majority of IMBs, however, do sell their servicing as well. And the servicing buyer buys that servicing from them. Uh, and uh, in those cases, they're relieved of that asset uh, as well. But in the case of the question you're asking, Clayton, under the forbearance plan that's in place, um, and this is one that I've been pretty public about, what, uh, what the federal government has created, both through the congressional legislation and the way it's been implemented, is they literally went out to American homeowners and said, if you can't make your payment for whatever reason, or I guess don't want to is how the forbearance plan seems to look to me. Uh, and you're in a Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, or Jenny Mae loan. You don't have to. We'll give you six months free uh, of no payments. And free is a bad word because you're still going to owe it. But you're going to get six months of no payments. We won't harm your credit. And you can start now. And by doing so, um, we put this incredible burden on private industry because while the consumer's off the hook from paying the mortgage, the servicer still has to advance those payments to the holder of, the, of that mortgage-backed security. Uh, and so what Washington did is they literally shifted the burden of making the mortgage payment from the home buyer to these private companies that by no means have the wherewithal for the massive potential risk here of advancing billions of dollars of payments. And one estimate uh, recently is maybe as high as $100 billion of payments to the investor. And so what we thrust upon the non-bank sector, not from anything of their own doing. They, have, they, they didn't create this program, and the loans that were created uh, that may be going into forbearance were of the, some of the strongest credit we had seen uh, in our careers. 
but they placed a burden on the non-banks to suddenly come up, dig out of their pockets, uh, unforeseen volumes of money needed to advance to the investor. And uh, what many of us have been arguing for is that the, if, if the federal government's going to create a program that has such moral hazard that they're going to give it to people whether they need it or not, which is literally how the program is structured, uh, they had an obligation to deal with this liquidity timing gap we're in because ultimately all these loans are guaranteed. So the loans that have to advance to the Freddie Mac or Fannie Mae bondholders, if the loans go bad, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae guarantee those loans. They, re they reimburse the uh, servicer for whatever costs were incurred. It's the timing of having to make upwards of six months of payments or maybe a year. And in a traditional world, loans get pulled out of pools earlier. We're not certain if these are considered performing or non-performing. Will they get pulled out of pools? Will they not? Uh, will the GSEs take responsibility for them earlier? Are they going to remain extended once they're done with the forbearance? Um, how does that get reimbursed? Uh, FHA has what's called a partial claim. That's how the servicer gets reimbursed. What happens on the in, on this side? This is the the challenge was so extraordinary uh, that, in my view, the administration, the FHFA, uh, and the GSEs have to back up the program that they created and not risk taking down an entire sector of our uh, American economy that, through no thought, fault of their own, just suddenly got this outrageous burden thrust on their backs. So. FHFA Director Calabria has been vocal this week in interviews with HousingWire and other media outlets that he believes that forbearance will not be widespread. Are, are we looking at different data points across the industry? Where do you think the disconnect is on the industry's expectation and reality that they're seeing and the projections of Calabria's team at FHFA? Or is there other factors motivating? Yeah that that message well um let's look at it this way why would we even consider taking the risk what, what, what why would we even you know risk this model over bets on who's going to take up uh, forbearance i will tell you this i talked to one large servicer has a couple million borrowers uh in his portfolio uh in the first two days of the forbearance plan first two days of the month borrowers in his portfolio had opted for forbearance. And we're seeing the unemployment data coming in day after day after day, which only says this is going to get worse. So the estimate that it's going to be one or 2%, I think is ludicrous um, and really naive. And, uh, you know, Mark, Director Calabria, has even gone so far as in an interview with one of the major newscasts said, you know, borrowers need to be honest. You know, you don't build a program this way. They created a program that anybody can get. And now after the fact, they're saying, uh, I don't think it's going to be as bad and we need bars to be honest. The downside of this is severe because the uncertainty over how big the number will be and whether non-bank servicers can even survive it, should it be a bigger number, is causing outrageous credit constraints being put on the market. We all know that one of the largest uh, warehouse lenders, uh, a bank in New York, announced uh, that they're now requiring a minimum 700 FICO score for any loan in their warehouse. Um, and I, I expect others to follow because of the size and scope of that institution. We've seen the non-QM market evaporate. Uh, we've seen Wells Fargo back out of buying uh, jumbo loans through the correspondent channel. We're seeing lenders uh, put overlays on FHA loans, uh, conventional loans, 
Uh, we're seeing mortgage insurance companies announce they won't insure cash out refinances or investor loans. All of the credit constraint comes from uh, two primary um, sources. First is the overall uncertainty about what will happen with loan performance, when we'll get back to work, what will ultimate default rates look like, and what risk do I have? That's an understandable um, outcome that could cause some credit constraints. But I've noticed ever since the director has started making these comments that warehouse lenders, repo lenders, servicing buyers, and more are really starting to pull back because they're worried that their non-servicing buyer might be a victim because the director has publicly said he's more than willing to see some fail, uh, hasn't drawn any line as to uh, when that might stop or when he might intervene. Uh, and you can do the math yourself. We've seen it published in multiple sources. The MBA put a letter forward. Uh, there's recent articles coming out uh, estimating that if 25% of all loans that are eligible from the GSEs or Ginnie Mae programs go into forbearance, you know, we're looking at 70 billion-ish uh, in the first six months, somewhere in the 140 billion-ish range uh, if they opt for a full year. Those dollars would take down any servicer in the nation. So what, what is just strikingly uh, remarkable to me is that a federal reg regulator like the FHFA, who should be part of the process of stabilizing the housing market and making sure it's ready to fire on all engines when we want to rebuild this economy in a few months, that instead they would be doing anything but that and throwing such disruption and uncertainty into this segment of the business that whether you, you know, Director Calabria likes it or not, is a dominant force uh, in home ownership in this nation. Now, the FHFA said that in a scenario where uh, a servicer fails, they would be willing to transfer servicing rights to larger or implied healthier servicers. What is the impact of, of a servicer failing? How, yeah. how could or would that work if that happened? Yeah, I, I, I found that comment just unbelievable. <laughs> and, and, and as you know, he also added in the comment that consumers might be better treated by going to a larger servicer. Uh, I started off talking with you about my experience looking at the largest servicers back in the Great Recession that I was in the administration working on. And when you have a lot of distressed borrowers and you're a really large servicer, you can get overwhelmed very quickly. I, I, I see no value in that transfer. More, more importantly, the borrower gets stuck in that transfer. Have you ever had your transfer, servicing transferred? I have. Um, in that period of transfer, who do I call? What if I have a problem? What happens with my forbearance plan? If I started one here and went one there, is that going to be seamlessly transferred uh, to the new servicer? What if I need to know other options? How am I going to get treated? I, I just find uh, it incredible to me and incredulous that we would be throwing such disruption in in the midst of a global crisis like the one we're going through. We should be doing anything possible to stabilize this housing finance sector uh, and make certain that uh, this is gonna keep functioning, not throwing out, hey, we'll just transfer servicing to another large servicer. Which one, Mark? Who are you gonna transfer to that can handle this better? What are they gonna pay for it? Uh, who's gonna make up that cost, the cost of transfer, the disruption effect to the consumer? Um, you know, again, I, I, I worry that, and I've known the director for many years in Washington because anybody who's been working on policy, uh, Mark's always been a voice. He was a voice when he was on the Senate Banking Committee, when he was at the Cato Institute, um, and then he served as the vice president's chief economist. 
The one thing Mark never has done is held a job in industry. Um, and he's never managed something like this. So it's one thing to have philosophical economic beliefs about when the government should step in or not. Um, but this is a time when he should be listening to industry and, uh, and, and just, and he should be doing his role like Fed Chairman Powell is clearly doing his to make sure we, were, we keep the market stable as we go through this, uh, this crisis here. During these challenging times, Quicken Loans Mortgage Services is committed to the health and well-being of its partners, its partners' clients, and its communities. Even though things are changing rapidly, you can count on the QLMS commitment to speed, certainty, and care. QLMS is now approving new partners within 24 hours. That means you can be up and running quickly and be able to help your clients. Visit QLMortgageServices.com to get started. Now, more than ever, QLMS is stronger together. Thank you for listening to our brief ad. And now back to the episode. Now, in talking about listening to industry, uh, earlier this week, or it actually may have already been on, on Sunday, a few days ago, um, a bipartisan uh, group from Senate um, wrote a letter that, that they would support, or I think the tone was that they would be in support or encouraging liquidity for, for non-bank servicers. Right. Uh, so wh- where is the, where is the disconnect between Senate and FHFA? Ultimately, how influential could this, uh, bipartisan group be in the, the outcome of this challenge? Well, first of all, I, I applaud, uh, Senator Warner and the, I'm a Virginian, so I know Senator Warner pretty well, but that's a great bipartisan letter and a truly bipartisan letter, letter that was sent in. Um, I, having lived public policy for at least a good chunk of the, end, the tail end of my career, um, you, do, you have to apply pressure where you can. And so having the Senate apply pressure, particularly bipartisan pressure, is really important. The White House will hear that. The Treasury Department will hear that. Um, Chairman Powell did a, uh, a conference call through the Brookings Institute uh, just this past week, and he spoke openly about his concern about non-bank servicers, how they're watching it very closely. Um, and so the way I think this comes about ultimately is either the FHFA director realizes that he could be playing a role in damaging the economy uh, on his own in a way that is inexcusable in the midst of a crisis when all these other federal agencies are stepping in to save the economy, then Congress has passed enormous bailout packages for America, uh, and that he, with all the tools available to him, is making up excuses as to why he doesn't need to do this. Um, I'm hoping that the pressure will come to bear on on the director and his team uh, that they need to do their job. And their job is, when they put out a program called forbearance to the uh, two biggest institutions that they regulate, uh, they need to make certain that we don't disrupt the liquidity uh, and the functioning of the housing finance system when they have tools available that they can clearly implement. I believe firmly uh, that in the event he doesn't and the disruption effect becomes large, that not only are we going to have a lot of angry home buyers out there if their servicing starts getting transferred, and we're going to have a loss of jobs uh, from those who are working in industry, which only adds insult to injury here. Um, but I think, I think you know, folks like Chairman Powell, who has, has stepped in across the board uh, and has indicated he has an unending you know, appetite to make sure we come out of this uh, as a stable economy with every tool he has available, 
Um, I think the Fed will step in. But, you know, Mark has a job to do. Um, this is not a time for ideology uh, about what the government should do. This is a crisis, not brought on by a credit event. This is a crisis brought on by a virus. Uh, and the, the director's own actions could take that virus and infect the entire housing finance system by his inaction uh, and unwillingness to do what can be done. And it can be done. So Dave, you've been vocal and have shared a, an actionable plan that would provide liquidity. Um, what, what is that plan and what action are, are you advocating for from the FHFA or other constituents in this yeah. uh, debacle? No, I think there, there, but first of all, there are three pathways you could go on. There's only three, I think, but one would be a, a, a liquidity window set up by the Federal Reserve. It doesn't require FHFA. The Fed could do it. They have other advanced windows that they've had over the years, usually for banks. This would have to be open to non-banks, and then the non-banks would have to have a pledge of some the MSRs or something to collateralize those advances. But that could, that could be done. I think the Fed is reluctant to do that uh, because they'd like to see the regulator that is responsible here to do their job. We've, the MBA has proposed uh, for years using the federal home loan bank system as an advanced uh, uh, capability. It's a platform backed by the taxpayers. We have federal home loan banks across the country. It's limited to bank membership, but during a crisis, this crisis, there could be an exception made where they open up their exchange windows, uh, allowing uh, non-banks to pledge the asset to the federal home loan bank in exchange for that liquidity. And the federal home loan uh, bank is also regulated by FHFA, correct? So that would be collaborative support. Okay. Yeah, and uh, you know that would one. I, I, anytime I talk about this, I get attacked by a lot of community banks who like to keep the uh, the privacy of their country club intact. <laughs> but I, uh, I I think these are tools in a crisis. We have, we're, we're in a crisis here. I'm not picking business models. I'm, uh, my goal is to have everybody succeed and survive at the best we can through this, and there's going to be people harmed along the way. But the third and most likely easiest, I guess, platform is for FHFA to direct Freddie and Fannie to set up liquidity facilities for their customers uh, servicing and make the servicing advance to the MBS investor on behalf of the servicer with the servicer pledging uh, that asset to the GSEs. Why does that work? The GSEs already own the asset. Um, I'm not sure people are aware, and there's always been debate and uh, arguments with the GSEs over this, going back to when I was there, but the GSEs own these servicing rights. The servicer technically services on behalf of the GSE and earns that 25 basis points for doing so, but it is the servicing, it is the GSE's asset already. They would just be making that advance during this period of time for servicers in need uh, to make sure that we keep the liquidity flowing, knowing that in the, in the end of the day, it's Freddie and Fannie on the hook for that loan if it doesn't perform anyway. So uh, that could be done. People argue, and Mark has argued, that the GSEs don't have the capital to do this. Um, frankly, you know, they do. They have what's called a line of credit that was established uh, when they were in conservatorship. It's about $240 billion today. The Treasury holds it. Uh, yes, it would draw it down. But the replenishment would come as the loans perform or the GSEs back these with their guarantees. Uh, but one way or the other, you know, you have a line of credit for emergency times. You know, this is the emergency time. If you look at the, even the, the, the most radical estimates of how much could be drawn down by the folks that Mark Calabria disagrees with the most, uh, 
we're still talking, you know, likely south of $100 billion at its worst. Um, that would still leave a lot of the liquidity left over in the line uh, to deal with. So the you third know, solution is for the, the GSEs have these emergency lines up to $200 billion is the, the estimate that you used? They have a line of credit that was established in the preferred stock purchase agreement. That's the document that holds them in conservatorship. Okay. And it, it's fully funded and it sits there at the Treasury Department. It's $240 billion. It was already allocated by Congress. The money's sitting in that account. Uh, to be used by the GSEs if needed. And essentially, like this solution is not an injection of capital. It is not a, a bailout. It is not a stimulus check that costs the country or the taxpayers money. This is a, a revolving line of credit for the servicers as well. So the servicers aren't getting a aren't getting a check, not getting a uh, not getting a, a stimulus wire. They are getting access to capital, which they would also pay back. So it's tapping the GSC line of credit, so servicers can essentially tap a line of credit and manage the timing risk that they are facing due to forbearance. Well said, Clayton. I mean, okay. we are talking about cash flows. None of this would benefit the servicer, frankly. It, would yep. sa- it might save the industry from uh, some systemic shock here. Services don't make money on that. In fact, the services are still hiring. You know that one servicer I referenced earlier has 2 million loans and they had 118,000 forbearance requests in the first two days of April. They also told me they're hiring 1,400 employees in their servicing department, uh, which is an increase of their workforce of about 30% just to deal with this. The services are incurring massive costs anyway, um, but that money wouldn't go to that. that. That's paid for by the servicer. This money would purely be used to deal with the timing gap, as you describe it, from uh, when the borrower makes the, uh, doesn't make their payment till it, to get the advances to the investor until such time as either those get paid back uh, or the borrower, it's, some will likely go into foreclosure at the end. I hope it's a very small percentage, uh, but those that don't reperform, those are, those are backed up by the GSE's guarantees anyway. I, you know, in the end of the day, Freddie Fannie backs every one of those loans. They're responsible for the them and if they go into default they reimburse the servicer for all of these costs we're talking about we're we're just you know talking about how to avoid taking out a critical component of the american housing finance system uh through no fault of their own as i've said before uh and and make that liquidity function and the servicers uh, the gses own that servicing It's, it's it's as much their responsibility as it is the servicers to make sure this system continues to function properly can we talk a little bit more about the the homeowners and the consumers that are that are being impacted here? Um, yeah. you, you, we talked about unemployment uh, a little bit earlier. Um, we've we've all seen the the massive um, increases in uh, new unemployment claims. Um, there yeah. there's some, and this this all plays into the the economic model here. But there, there's there's some industry commentators that are saying that there there's still an inability for for some unemployed or furloughed people to file for unemployment. So yeah. is there a chance that we could see an even larger wave or continued wave of, of new unemployment claims as uh, unemployed workers are finally able to get their application through the system? Yeah, so I mean, Clayton, the one thing I I'm, I'm, uh, have a healthy understanding of is my background and my uh, <laughs> skill sets. I'm not an economist and I can't predict what's gonna happen in the unemployment uh, world. I'm, I'm reading the same headlines you're reading. Um, I, I have gotten some great economic research from various economists who are putting out current forecasts as to what this may all mean. 
what ultimate unemployment rates may look like, how the ramp rate may uh, look as we come out of this and go back to work and when we may back, be back close to full employment like we were just coming into this. Um, so yeah, I, you know, the, the inability to get unemployment claims, and frankly, I'm speaking to a lot of friends who have small businesses and they can't get any small business, uh, any small business monies put aside yep. uh, because their banks can't even get access to the SBA uh, to, to get those, get that. Yeah. For the, for the paycheck, paycheck protection plan. Yeah. So all of this is, you know, it's really the dysfunctions of federal agencies that aren't built for uh, this kind of massive event. And uh, I don't really blame federal agencies. I don't think we'd all want to staff for an event like this uh, because we'd have huge bloating uh, the rest of the time, but it is, it is a real difficult period right now. We've got to have flexibility for people who can't get their unemployment checks and more. But um, the, the thing that I've looked at is I'm, I'm looking at various economists' research, uh, and I won't quote them by name because I didn't ask them if I could, but their public uh, research material out there from some of the top economists is that, you know, what makes this recession different is uh, it wasn't built on a, on a credit event. The last Great Recession was created because we had a bunch of unsustainable mortgage products out there, subprime, breathe here, fog the mirror, you know, whatever analogy you want to use on the Nina Sissa, Nina Sissa, Negam, 100 LTV stuff that was in the marketplace. Um, and we had a lack of demand. The demographics weren't good at the time because the millennial generation wasn't yet buying homes. They were renting. And so we had a loss of owner-occupied housing uh, and really bad credit, created a bubble, all collapsed, took down uh, the economy, ours and others. Um, you can blame this industry for that event, and that's why the economy took so long to recover. This is a different event. We coming into this just a month ago. We were all going, we were all going to our offices a month ago, just a reminder. And uh, we had some of the best credit performance we had ever seen. Rates were near historic lows. We had a shortage of inventory. Most economists are saying they don't see home prices dropping much because clearly in the entry-level home ownership space, there wasn't enough in inventory to begin with. So even when we come back, even with slower demand, there still won't be enough housing to meet even the slower demand cycle. Uh, so there's a natural cushion here um, underneath the economy that's going to allow us to recover faster despite the outrageous numbers we're seeing today. I mean, when you, you know, the, the millions of unemployment that we're seeing filed every day, the, the question is what percentage of those are going to be back to work and over what period of time when we return to work? I mean, when restaurants can reopen, they're going to need some staff to operate. Will they be packed? No. But will they be serving and will people be going to restaurants? Likely, yes. I heard the Fed chairman talk about this yesterday uh, that we're going to see pent up demand of people wanting to go back to businesses. Will every retail store in America be doing a sale to get products sold in shopping malls, et cetera, across the country? To get kickstarted again, yes, I think. I think it'll be like Black Friday for a while with, with you know, everything trying to get consumers back into the stores. I'm not sure it's a healthy thing, but hopefully they'll have uh, good controls in place. They're going to need employees. So, I mean, my point is industries will come back. I'm looking, uh, you know, in the community where I live, I have landscapers literally calling me because they know what I do for a living. Uh, they can't go to work. They can't build swimming pools and yeah and stuff, you know, deal with yard work, et cetera, they can't have their people out. So um, there's a lot of like natural recovery curve that's going to be immediate. And you'll see an economist forecast, we're going to see an immediate bump quarter over quarter from when we're not working to when we're working 
It won't be back all the way, but it will bump immediately right back. And then it may bump down a little bit further. Some are calling the expected recovery a W. So sharp down, which is where we are now, bump up, which is the middle of the W, maybe some waffling down a bit, and then we'll start continuing to grow. Mm -hmm. uh, and then back to an area of full employment because the core fundamentals of the economy in the United States are still hugely strong. Rates are gonna be extremely low. Um, and once we have a, a, a vaccine for this virus, you know, we're back to the races, I think. Yeah, I, I can't imagine any first-time home buyers who have been on the sidelines uh, in, in, in the first few months of this year or in past years not choosing to come into the market on the other side of this. If, if, we're, oh. if there's ever going to be a buying opportunity, even if we're, real estate is just at a percentage or point or two discount, it's going to yeah. be the only opportunity, um, the best opportunity I think there will be, especially considering the projected low rate environment. So I appreciate that response and appreciate staying in your lane on the unemployment projections. Um, so I'll, I'll do a little better with this next question, stay in your lane um, and, and wrap up in, here in a minute. So one of the unique parts of, of this recession and all of the, the factors that we're considering here are this, this is an election year. And this, this is Calabria's problem to solve. This is the, the Trump administration's problem to solve, but we also... Um, have the, the Biden campaign that, is, that is, has to be thinking about these issues that the, the country is face, facing in terms of a global health pandemic, as well as impact on industry and the housing and mortgage industry specifically. Um, have you seen or heard anything from the Biden campaign on how they are thinking about this issue? Are they, are they inserting themselves or their voice in any way? Or is they, as, has the um, other headlines kind of stolen the show uh, as, we, as we're kind of charging toward this path to an election in the fall? Yeah. Um, well, look, I, you, you know, I have a political bias. I've never been shy about that. So um, it is what it is. And people may disagree or agree with my views. Um, but that being said, Biden is going to have a thoughtful campaign. Uh, he's got incredibly strong talent, a deep bench uh, that are helping think of policy solutions. It's um, I was very hopeful when the Trump team came in that he, his business experience uh, would attract a, a a greater diversity of uh, talent that would help form good policy. And I thought all the bluster or whatever you want to call it wouldn't really matter because we'd have uh, fundamentally really smart people in the, in the right seats. And unfortunately, you know, the Treasury Department's not staffed. Mnuchin is, doesn't even have an undersecretary of domestic finance, which was an extremely important role on things like this. Um, and that person would have a team under him or her uh, that's in, that would be in the Treasury Department, and those offices are all empty. And so um, what I do think is going to be a contrast is uh, Biden as a presidential candidate already has an extraordinary bench of really strong business talent, economic advisors, and policy experts who are very balanced. So it's by any stretch not a Bernie Sanders campaign. It's a, it's a Joe Biden team. And he's already made some proposals around student loan debt for uh, for certain segments of America, and he's, he's putting out policy proposals. I would just encourage everybody to recognize that we're in the midst of a crisis. Biden can't go on TV every day talking policy when we really have to focus on the recovery of the virus. You have the president doing a daily press conference, which is taking a lot of the wind out of the, of the, the media space. Um, presidential candidate is going to, is, has really good policies already established. We'll all be hearing more of them. And as we get into the true election cycle, especially when we're more back to work, it'll be clear to most 
uh, to everybody where each candidate stands and um, and then America can make its its decision. And uh, but I, I have I've known uh, the vice president and um, you know had a chance working in the Obama regime to know a lot of the people who surround him and, and support him. Uh, and frankly, if anybody who lives in D.C. and takes the Acela to New York or back, if you haven't been out in a car with Joe Biden at some point in your career, you haven't traveled there as much because I've, I've spoken to Biden a couple times and by accident just bumping into him in a train. Um, so I like the guy. I think he's a straight shooter. He's blue collar kind of a roots. And uh, um, I'm hoping that he will come up with ideas that at least make people think about how they want the country to move forward coming out of this. All right, Dave. Well, really appreciate that perspective. Um, on one, one last parting thought. We're, we're recording this on, on Friday um, as we go into the weekend. Uh, it's Easter weekend, so hopefully everybody gets a, a breather to spend some time with, with family um, if they haven't had enough during the shelter-in-place order. <laughs> but uh, anything we should be expecting or keeping our eyes on in the, in the coming week? This, this news cycle is moving so quickly. Um, anything that you are uh, sitting on the edge of your, your seat for or anticipating as we, as we go into the week following Easter? Yeah, I think it's um, it, volatility and uncertainty are the, are the words of the, of the week. And uh, just like we've seen in the stock market, um, we're going to see those those kinds of moves up upwards and downwards. I, I think the real question is, uh, what is the president going to do about trying to get America back to work, and is that going to be a good thing or a bad thing? And depending on what, uh, if he pushes uh, his own perspective and tries to move one way or the other uh, quickly, we'll see how the markets react to that. Um, I've been watching the Fed buying. They're being very stable and cautious in terms of the buying activity, and that's really helping us with pipeline uh, risk and more. So I think I, I have great faith in Powell at the Federal Reserve, um, but it's really going to come down to, for our industry, uh, what happens with liquidity. I would expect everybody in the mortgage finance sector should just be prepared for an extended duration of credit constraints being applied to the loans that they're trying to originate. and. Uh, I would tell you, don't kick your borrower out of, you know, if they don't make it now, just mm -hmm. keep their number, tell them to go relax, because it will come back. Um, and once we have greater certainty coming out of this, uh, the borrowers may not be able to get a loan now because suddenly a new overlay has been put in place. We'll get that opportunity and rates are going to be super low um, for the long run by almost everybody's expectation, including if you listen to Powell's leading uh, comments in yesterday's interview. So. Um, Let's just look at the, I'm looking at the liquidity piece first and foremost, and hoping that uh, cooler heads will prevail and that the pressure being applied inside Washington is going to help create some statements that provide better clarity and certainty as it relates to that. Um, if we could take the, the risk, take the foot off the backs of the non-bank servicers uh, and stop making them feel like they did something wrong when they did absolutely nothing wrong and we need to come help support them uh, right now, I think that would go a long way to bringing, you know, a calmer uh, regime to mortgage finance overall. Last thing, Clayton, just to be aware of, um, you know, Pennsylvania just, the governor put out a moratorium on home purchase activities. So you can't do final inspections, you can't do walkthroughs, you can't do appraisals, um, and you can't go to closings. So if we see more of that activity, you know, that's going to frustrate the purchase side of the business as well. And I just encourage everybody to have a recognition that we've only been in this a month. 
uh, and so much has happened. And frankly, uh, a month or a month and a half from now, we're probably going to be heading back to work in some sort of constrained way, but we'll be able to leave our homes. Businesses will start uh, opening again. We just need to watch how that all progresses and what the pace of development is as we move forward, because ultimately next year is going to be returning to a much stronger economy, no matter what happens. Dave, thank you very much for your time and perspective. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Clayton. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Make sure to write us on iTunes. Also, make sure to check out HousingWire's latest podcast, The Daily Download, which is a daily wrap of HousingWire's hottest stories, now available on Spotify, Google Podcast, and more. We'll see you next week.